This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Media Airtime LLC and Matt Mattern. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got uh, Kyle Ash, who is with the Bank Information Center, Director of Policy and Strategy and Advocacy there. Also uh, works with the U.S. Climate Action Network. Uh, Welcome to the program, Kyle. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be on the show. Okay. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Bank Information Center. and what uh, all, you all do. I had read on your website that you advocate for transparency, accountability, sustainability, and inclusion in development finance. Uh, that's a mouthful. What what does that mean in, in reality? So the, the Bank Information Center, we, we've been around since the 1980s, based in Washington, D.C. We're a nonprofit that was founded to really keep an eye on the World Bank at first. Um, which is a multilateral development bank that helps to pr- provide financing to, to um, developing countries. Uh, the World Bank is one of many multilateral development banks now. So over the years, we've come to focus on a lot of them. The, the issue with the World Bank and other MDBs is that they're really not accountable to voters, to people on the ground, uh, whether you're talking about in countries like the US, which provides a lot of the budget for the lending that they do, um, or regular people on the ground where they actually do projects. And you could be talking about any kind of projects, a COVID-19 health response project or a road project or a dam, uh, any number of things. So we really were founded to try and help to uh, inform people on the ground about what's happening with uh, World Bank activities and to help them provide input to the bank if we feel like we can help with social environmental protection. So how do you do that and which projects do you focus on? Because I assume the World Bank uh, has lots of projects going around uh, across the planet, and uh, it probably takes a heck of a lot of resources to monitor every single project that the World Bank is doing, correct? It it does, and we're a pretty small shop. We're only about 20 people. Um, so the the first thing we try and do is look for our value add. There's a number of other organizations around the world that also help. So these are partner organizations in other countries that really help try to to democratize development finance and would focus on the World Bank and other multilateral development banks. So we work closely with them and keep each other informed about what's happening. Yeah, we can't focus on every single bank project uh, at any given time. We're probably monitoring around 30 or 40 projects on the ground with local partners in various countries. So how it could happen that we monitor a project is we have a partner in, say, um, in the Ivory Coast would be hearing that there's going to be a World Bank project and has some concerns, and they go to um, a local nonprofit there, and then they would already know of us because we've been doing the work over the years, and will reach out to us and ask if we can help. And so that, in a sense, we are sort of, uh, like the bank says, demand-driven in terms of where we focus. Um, but then we also come to focus on projects sometimes where we know there's a big gap, um, and you focus on, a lot on climate on your show, and so um, the World Bank and other public banks don't have a great record when it comes to climate change. So it's something that we're keeping an eye on, and they say they're going to be integrating climate into their projects and into their policies a lot more. And so we 
come to look at their um, projects and their policies from that perspective too. Well, tell us about some wins that uh, your organization has had in terms of redirecting the World Bank and other multilateral lenders, and also maybe some of the challenges ahead in terms of projects that are on the horizon for from these lenders that don't look very climate friendly. Probably the the biggest single victory was the uh, establishment of the environmental and social protection framework at the World Bank. So they have, the World Bank has existed since the end of World War II, was really set up to help um, countries mostly in Europe uh, develop after all the destruction of World War II. And so that was between the 40s and the 70s, really focusing on Europe, a lot of that. And since then has kind of expanded its portfolio and focused on the rest of the world. Uh, and for a long time, really just focused on what the Western countries, what the U.S. predominantly prioritized in economic development, which was free trade, developing industries for exports. So to actually earn money on the global market. Um, they weren't thinking about things like social environmental safeguards. So they weren't thinking about making sure people with disabilities had access to public transit. They weren't thinking of impacts on fresh water as a result of big agriculture projects. Um, but in the 70s and 80s, there started to be a lot of focus on that, and they developed some basic safeguards for the environment and uh, and workers and communities on the ground. But there were big gaps. And so uh, the Bank Information Center and our partners pushed the World Bank for a long time to improve their, their social environmental safeguards framework. And in 2017, they did come out with a, um, a, a final really good, robust uh, framework. It doesn't include everything, but the biggest victory in these new safeguards was that for every project, the bank now has to do a social engagement plan where they go out and they proactively find which stakeholders will be impacted by this project uh, and make sure that they are getting the input from those stakeholders to mitigate any impacts that may come up or to reduce impacts or, and prevent them before even going into it. It's not a, a panacea, of course, and it now isn't all of the bank's financing. There's other components of bank financing that aren't covered by this, but it's definitely a big victory and sort of helped to encourage other multilateral development banks to develop similar policies. Well, I know coming out of uh, last year's COP26, there was some talk that, uh, that uh, the banking industry might lead the way towards, uh, you know, in the environmental movement, uh, if it, if it adopted standards that uh, were pro-climate, and and uh, uh, have we seen a, a radical shift in the way banks are financing projects, or is that just uh, hype and fluff coming out of COP26? So what we have seen is a radical shift in what, how they talk about it, uh, but I wouldn't just blow that off. We've, we've also seen some shifts on paper. What we haven't seen is actually a huge shift in how they spend their money, uh, I first got involved in pushing on World Bank energy policy after the Copenhagen Climate Conference in 2009. They were still funding coal-fired power plants. And there was a lot of pushback from the bank about not doing that anymore. Uh, we've come a long way since that to the point where now the World Bank is saying that they're going to be phasing out support for all fossil fuels, whether it's a coal-fired power plant or extracting oil and gas. Um, to produce it for power plants down the line. So they've come around into admitting that there's a problem, that they've had a role in the problem, but we haven't seen yet as a massive shift in their financing. But 
but it's important that they do it. Um, and the reason we don't blow them off and just say that it's rhetoric is that the World Bank is one of the largest sources of climate finance. So because big countries with a lot of money like the US and countries in Europe, partners in Europe are not providing enough uh, to help developing countries deal with the climate crisis, whether it's to develop sustainably and not have as high emissions as the US did historically, or to actually be more resilient in the face of climate impacts like rising sea levels, um, unbearable heat waves, any a number of things that's already starting to happen. And so the, the US and other big um, donors have started to lean more and more on banks, including the World Bank, to provide this climate finance commitment. So we need we need that money, but we also need it to be real and have a real impact. So it has to be more than just what the bank says uh, or what they describe on paper, but we actually need to see shifts in that money, and we haven't seen that quite yet. So you're saying that uh, even since 2009 in the intervening 13 years, uh, the World Bank is still lending a substantial uh, portion of their funds to fossil fuel companies. And and have we seen any decline in the rate at which they're funding kind of high emitting, uh, polluting development? We, we have seen a decline for sure on the fossil fuels. What we haven't seen is a commitment in terms of um, a policy where they will never do it again. So they, the bank thinks that it hasn't funded um, coal at all for the last several years. You can see them talk about that. I think they say since 2012, but in fact, they, they have, it's just that they haven't tracked it fully. So I mentioned before that um, most of the attention has been on what they call project financing. So like the bank will actually fund a coal-fired power plant, right? That would be a project, project financing. There's also this other type of lending that the bank does called development policy financing, which is basically budget support. Our government will come to them, a client government, and say they would like this amount of money. Uh, and the bank says, okay, well, in exchange, you have to commit to these policies. Well, some of those policies actually help fossil fuel development. So if you look at the overall amount of lending that the bank's providing for the fossil fuel industry, it has not disappeared and there's still plenty of it. Um, and, and there's even talk about doing more uh, when it comes to, to gas or when it comes to other things that they think are going to be good for the climate, but actually bad, like um, carbon capture and sequestration projects, which are actually enhanced oil recovery projects. So in terms of uh, this development funding support that the World Bank is giving to uh, countries that help uh, their fossil fuel industries, what is being done to slow that down? And is the U.S. putting any pressure on them? Has the Biden administration uh, changed anything regarding its support or uh, its oversight on uh, the World Bank in the last few years? Yes, and we've seen some really good things from the Biden administration. Um, namely, the uh, one of the first things he did when he became president was to um, issue a couple of executive orders. And one of them created the stage for a guidance that the Treasury Department issued on how the US will use its voice and vote in the multilateral development banks like the World Bank when it comes to fossil fuel projects. So now really the US has to vote against fossil fuel projects for the most part. And has that changed uh, the results? Uh, are, are the European countries doing the same? Um, and if the Europeans and the U.S. Uh, vote in the direction towards uh, not funding fossil fuel projects, are, is that enough in the way of uh, voting to shift 
the balance of power? Um, so it's kind of a long answer, <laughs> probably for the next segment. It's uh, it's shifted the politics for sure. Is the is the first thing to say. Okay, well, we'll come back to it after the break. Uh, this is Matt Mattern, uh, your host of the Climate Change. And uh, I've got Kyle Ash with the Bank Information Center. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to a Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And I've got Kyle Ash, who's uh, with the Bank Information Center, Director of Policy and Strategy. Kyle, just asking you about uh, how the U.S. directives uh, for its representatives and voting shares at the World Bank have changed anything in, in recent years. So there's a political answer and there's an answer in terms of has it actually shifted how the money is spent. And I think that the U.S. policy on how it votes in the World Bank is influential on that. It's one of many types of policies that we need to have. So since the U.S. has come out with this policy, I've heard of a similar one from France and from Germany and from the U.K. And so things are moving in the right direction. It needs to happen more than just at the World Bank and other multilateral development banks. Uh, we just came out of the U.N. climate talks. Um, there's all sorts of policies that they're talking about that we need. We need everything. Um, but if we're just to talk about how the World Bank is spending its money, uh, I think both that type of policy and how the board votes on projects when they come up is needed, but we also need the outside pressure. Um, and the World Bank is feeling that more. I think we saw a lot of that when um, the president of the World Bank, John Malpass, was not able to answer very eloquently whether he thought the climate crisis was an issue for the bank not long ago. A lot of people went after him for it, saying that he wasn't a, a scientist using that climate denier talking point. And he backtracked on that and it for sure did not represent the bank's position as an institution, but it really just underscored that he did not take the climate crisis as a priority, which is a big problem since the World Bank is the largest source of climate finance. Uh, give us a, a little bit of a sense of how much uh, lending the World Bank actually does. So that's a good question. Um, it's not the largest source of public finance, for sure. Uh, it probably does something on the order of tens of billions of dollars um, per year or more. Uh, it depends on which part of the bank you're talking about. Um, for the most part, we're talking about uh, the part of the bank that's focused on project lending or budget support lending. Um, but what they do, which is more influential than the amount of money, is pioneer investments. So they will de-risk projects where we really need to see investment mobilize. So they'll be the first investor in a lot of projects. Say you want to have a big wind farm or a big solar farm in a country where there is no wind or solar, and um, the government in that country could not get a loan are financing at all from any other source that will start with the World Bank. Well, if the World Bank provides that financing, that will bring in other types of finance. So they really do mobilize finance in the right direction, but they can also mobilize it in the wrong direction. So we no longer just focus on the World Bank because it's not the only source of money, but we still prioritize it because it does set the stage for where money will go in the future. So in terms of uh, big projects that the World Bank is doing, has it uh, focused uh, some or a substantial sum of its 
lending towards things like wind and solar in uh, the last decade or so? It's definitely doing more of it. Um, I think if you're to look at the numbers, uh, it's it's still a paltry sum. Uh, they're you know they're having to distribute their investments across lots of different sectors, and I think part of the reason why they don't do more is they they say they're demand driven, so they won't go into a country and say we would like you to finance this. They they sometimes promote in conversation and they convene meetings around issues um, to try and drum up interest, but in the end they will have to move forward with the project where there's actually interest already in a country to do that project. So I, I think that's part of the reason why we sometimes we will criticize them for just being rhetorical and not actually doing. But it is true that in some cases they do have to wait until they actually get a proposal coming to them because some one of their clients is actually requesting financing for this. They can't promote a specific project. So uh, kind of circling back to a question I had earlier, but uh, we didn't drill down on it too much, which is in terms of the banking industry, uh, do you see any kind of, uh, what What do you see? We talked, you said there was a rattle sh radical shift in the talk, the way they're talking about lending. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of the way they're actually lending that's different and more environmentally focused and, and less uh, money towards fossil fuels? Hopeful. So the most part, the discussion has not been about what they do, but about what they don't do. I think from the climate perspective, and the bank is guilty of this as well as I think nonprofits who have been focused on um, bank financing is that we mostly focus on the energy sector. So we are talking about fossil fuels. We're talking about not financing coal, oil, and gas for electricity production. I think that's been what people have mostly been talking about. The bank has been moving in the right direction in terms of shifting outside of that type of financing uh, with the caveats of um, gas projects, and now potentially on the horizon, um, projects that are in the name of carbon capture and storage. Uh, we have also seen a sort of an incremental increase in funding for uh, wind and solar and the public sector arm of the bank, the private sector arm of the bank, who's the International Finance Corporation, where they're actually lending to companies and instead of governments. We've seen a much greater increase there in terms of its renewables financing. So that's been good. It's been moving in the right direction. One big gap um, has been transportation. And so this is a good example of where right now we're still in the rhetorical phase uh, because the, the World Bank and other MDBs have really pushed this conversation about transportation decarbonization. We need to, we need to um, make sure that cars and buses and trucks are no longer spewing carbon dioxide into the air. This is close to a quarter of global CO2 from energy use is coming from transportation. So it's something that we can't ignore. Uh, the Bank Information Center last year started to really look at this at the World Bank and the Inter-American Inter Development Bank, the IDB, and found that they're, despite what they have been saying, still predominantly financing projects that support the internal combustion engine instead of zero emissions vehicles or zero emissions vehicle infrastructure. So they're they're still really just talking around this, um, including promoting vehicle electrification sometimes, but the financing is really still predominantly going towards regular cars, diesel buses, uh, large uh, emitting trucks, even though there are, are alternatives available. Well, I my, from uh, your answer, I'm uh, discerning that you're talking mostly about the World Bank and development banks. 
my question maybe is uh, more pointed at uh, private bank and the private banking industry. Have you seen any shift in the way they're funding projects uh, along those same lines? Uh, so you mean in terms of like Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank? <clears throat> Correct. I have not focused on private sector lending so much. Um which is maybe ironic because the, <laughs> one of the reasons that I even got into this set of work uh, is from working in private mortgage lending a long time ago. One of my first jobs outside of food and service was to work um, in the mortgage lending sector not long after the first, I know the second Bush administration deregulated that sector. And uh, I worked in real estate loans and I worked in taxes and insurance to help uh, companies flip properties that have been foreclosed on and make money off of them real quick. And so I realized the benefit. I mean, that wasn't how I was trained. I was raised to be, I was in a very religious household and kind of raised to be a missionary. I think so. I was supposed to be an advocate and I was supposed to be promoting things that were good for the community. So I had to get out of that. Um, and now I'm really just focused on public policy, but on public banks. So I, I think that our theory of change is that the interest from um, private banks will follow where public banks are investing. Uh, public banks are going to be investing in places that may not have as lucrative return. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues that do focus on the private sector as well, uh, and they that is what they're seeing. They're seeing a lot of investments going to places that have been de-risked by public funders like the World Bank or like um, bilateral financiers like the Development Finance Corporation or the U.S. Export-Import Bank. Well, let's uh, let's look, uh, turn our attention to the Belt and Road Initiative that uh, the Chinese uh, government has been pushing to extend China's influence. Has that been something that your organization has monitored at all? Not so much. Um, the politics around China and um, public financing and uh, and climate is something that we're sort of keeping an eye on, but I'm really tracking it in terms of the the day-to-day -day and how it's actually influencing public policy right now. Because uh, we we know that the Chinese are funding, you know, a lot of coal plants around the, the world. In particular, I saw recently they were funding a number of coal plants in Pakistan, which was the site of that horrific flood last year, which is, you know, kind of uh, a tragic situation is that they're committing more resources to destroy the environment and uh you know the himalayas are going to you know melt down uh, and cause huge floods as well as destroy the uh water supply for a few billion people um is there anything that we should be doing to to stop this or what could we do? It, it is a series of tragedies I, I think that one of the problems uh which exists in this case but also exists in case of whether you're talking about a U.S. funded project or a World Bank funded project in the energy sector is that, there, especially after a crisis, you see an immediate need for people to have power uh, and you do whatever is cheapest right now to provide it to them. And I can see the need to do that from a humanitarian perspective. I think that there's ways to do it which don't have as long lasting impacts as a brand new coal plant, which could be putting CO2 in the atmosphere for the next 40 or 50 years. Um, or even longer. So the question is about um, stranded assets from a financing perspective. Um, do we want to build things that we're just going to have to get rid of in the next five or 10 years or sooner? Um, and it, it seems probably 
in everyone's best interest to do something that maybe costs a little bit more right now and can still provide that need immediately. I think that makes sense. Well, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter and our guest Kyle Ash from the Bank Information Center. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Kyle Ash from the Bank Information Center on the program. Kyle, why is the World Bank important when it comes to the climate crisis? So I think the first thing to say is that they're, at least they say, the largest source of climate finance. Um, and this is the public money driven to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help communities adapt to climate crises. The uh, there's a question about whether this is actually the case if they are right now the largest source, um, but they could be. And I put it that way because uh, Oxfam is a nonprofit that's focused on climate finance and uh, and hu- human rights. They published a report a few months ago that showed actually the bank has been exaggerating on the um, what actually you could call a climate finance project or not. How, how the bank does this is essentially that they will finance a project and then they will calculate if it has a co-benefit in terms of reducing climate pollution or helping with resilience of communities where they did that project. Uh, and it's they haven't really published any metrics on how they're calculating these co-benefits. Uh, and so Oxfam did this report where they looked at how they could surmised the bank was doing these calculations to see if they came up with the same numbers uh, and found that it seemed like the bank was exaggerating by around 40% in the amount of money on climate finance. The So backing up, what is climate finance? In uh, the Copenhagen Climate Conference in ni- uh, 2009, that was the first climate conference I went to, um, the, the global community, uh, developing countries and non-governmental organizations. I worked for Greenpeace at the time. Uh, we were asking for $100 billion in climate finance. And this was to be grants, so not money that was going to indebt com- countries further, but it was supposed to be grants and it was supposed to be used to help countries adapt to the climate crisis, which they were not causing. It was a climate crisis caused by large emitters like the U.S. that were responsible for the most of the pollution in the atmosphere causing climate change. And what they got was a $100 billion commitment coming out of Copenhagen, um, but only some amount of it would be for adaptation, some other amount would be to help countries develop sustainably, which is fine. But it was unclear where the money would come from, it would be grants, it would be loans. Uh, And over the years, uh, 2009 is now a long time ago in terms of um, these climate commitments. It's become pretty clear that number one, $100 billion isn't enough. Uh, Number two, that uh, countries like the U.S. are not going to pony up. And what they've been doing is instead leaning on institutions like the World Bank to provide uh, the money for this commitment. And now the World Bank and other multilateral development banks are actually um, providing about a third of global public climate finance. So we, we need that money, but we also need it to work. So we need reports like Oxfam to put pressure on the bank to actually show that they are providing climate finance is actually helping to reduce emissions and actually helping countries to adapt. Um, But we also need that overall amount of money to go up because the need is probably well over a trillion dollars that's needed, not a hundred billion. 
which is supposed to be 100 billion per year. In terms of the U.S.'s commitment and what it's spending, uh, there was a, an enormous uh, a bill that was passed through Congress that that arguably was climate finance or, or certainly encouraged a greener economy. Uh, how much of that would you count towards the U.S.'s, uh, you, you know, need to be a part of this solution? So whether it is part of the solution for providing climate finance um, towards the U.N. commitment that the U.S. made, uh, none of it is the answer for that. I mean, the, I think maybe stepping back and thinking about how what is the U.S. role to play in all of this? And part of it is about money. Um, the U.S., more than any other country, can help provide public finance to countries who will be struggling with the climate crisis, who are already struggling with the climate crisis. But the reality is one of the two political parties in the U.S. Congress refuses to approve any money uh, for those communities in other countries. Right. And, and so you weren't going to see any money like that in the IRA. We had a, uh, a zeroing out of the U.S. contribution to the Green Climate Fund, which was the fund established um, also after the Copenhagen Climate Conference. But yes, the, the U.S. can help contribute to climate change even domestically um, or contribute to the response to the climate crisis. And we need to help countries adapt in the U.S. as well, not just uh, to provide money to to people outside of the US. So the IRA helps to do those types of things. And we, we do need to do that. The biggest, I think, in fact, from the perspective of helping to respond to the climate crisis with IRA was to actually move the US in the direction of um, not contributing much, as much climate pollution year by year. Well, in terms of uh, how do we come up with a plan and what's needed, you referenced a, a trillion dollar number I've uh, seen a number of books written, whether it's by Bill Gates or um, John Doerr wrote, wrote one about uh, kind of his plan. Uh, what's the definitive plan for, for solving the crisis and how much money is needed to effectuate that plan? So I think you can put me in the camp of folks who would not put a specific number on how much climate finance is needed. And one, one reason is that um, it's not zero sum. You can have money for climate finance that reduces emissions and helps communities adapt that also does other things. So the World Bank committed that 35% of its portfolio will be climate finance, but that doesn't mean that 35% of its portfolio will only help respond to the climate crisis. A lot of that money could also be helping with things like um, child rights or, uh, you know, helping communities to develop infrastructure, um, providing uh, essential finance for needs that people have day to day can also have climate co-benefits. So that's why I put a, put a specific number on how much climate finance is needed, but we for sure know some basic principles that we need to have in mind when we move forward with financing anything. And one is we need to be as close to zero emissions as possible by 2050. Uh, and that's net. So that means we need to stop investing in high emitting projects, no matter what they are. And that's not just in the energy sector, it's the transportation sector, it's infrastructure, it's agriculture. So like large industrial farms are a big problem. Um, but we need to do that as quickly as possible, not just by 2050. 
So in terms of sequestration and carbon capture, which you said that you're against and believe that it's kind of uh, directly linked to the fossil fuel industry, isn't it possible to have sequestration and carbon capture without uh, it being related to uh, the oil industry or, or fossil fuels? Yeah, it is. Um, so I, I think first, the starting point I have is, uh, what are some of the main reasons leaders are not acting more quickly? Uh, and we've hit on some of them in the conversation already. There's not enough accountability. There's perverse incentives from the global economy, namely the, the need to develop as quickly as possible in ways that could be fundamentally devastating to the climate. Uh, but there's also the moral hazards issue. So this is the problem with CCS. The starting point with carbon capture and storage is that, yes, in theory, it could be helpful. Uh, but what we've seen is, and I've lobbied in Congress for a long time now, is that it's used as a crutch to not act now in ways that we know matter. So we know if you want to reduce emissions from the energy sector, you need to swap out fossil fuel uh, source sources of energy with renewable sources of energy. Um, and the answer is not to start to develop some carbon capture and storage pilot projects that will maybe help 20 or 30 down, years down the road. That, that's not helpful. But you don't even have to get to that point. I think you can just <clears throat> look at what's actually happening. So there is a uh, the Global CCS Institute. You can look at the projects that they're actually uh, that have broken ground that are moving forward, uh, or you can look at what the interest is just in the U.S., what have been the uses of the 45Q tax credit for carbon capture. Um, this is the largest boondoggle for the oil and gas industry ever in U.S. history. What they're doing is scrubbing carbon dioxide <clears throat> from raw gas that's extracted because you can't have that be in the gas before you put it into the pipes to people's homes or to gas fired power plants. They're scrubbing that CO2 out and then they're piping it to uh, the oil production areas that have exhausted supplies that can't get any more out unless they pump CO2 down in there and they've run out of natural reservoirs of CO2. So we're essentially subsidizing anthropogenic sources of CO2 to promote more oil production. And we're getting that CO2 from the gas extraction industry has got nothing to do with reducing emissions from a coal-fired power plant or from a biogas plant or any other kind of plant. It's actually just subsidizing the oil industry. It's not doing anything for infrastructure or for policy. Well, that I agree with you is crazy. And uh, certainly we should limit uh, any, certainly any tax dollars going to benefit uh, producer, oil producers from using that uh, scam uh, or scheme, whatever you want to call it, to to uh, fleece the American taxpayers to pay for uh, greenwashing that. But I, I guess I would look at it uh, a, a different way. And after the break, we can continue this conversation. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Kyle Ash from the Bank Information Center. We'll be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got Kyle Ash uh, with the Bank Information Center. Kyle, just talking to you about carbon sequestration and carbon capture, and uh, what about the positive ways that carbon can be captured and 
possibly um, help us stave off, you know, essentially a disaster. That's kind of the way I look at it is that, yes, maybe sequestration is not being used at its highest and best uh, method at this point in time in, in ways that you just described, but it does have the potential for being used for good. And if uh, we are truly in facing an existential crisis, which I think we are, um, why not develop these carbon capture and sequestration uh, techniques so that we can avert a complete um, you know, climate disaster? So it's really tempting to look for quick tech solutions that would make it not so essential that we just completely overhaul our economic paradigm. I think that's what people are looking for. And it doesn't have to be we're overhauling our economic paradigm if we're just not using fossil fuels anymore. Uh, there maybe is a way that carbon capture could be helpful. And the only type of carbon capture and storage that I've come around to being open to discussing is, is what's called DACs or direct air carbon capture. And so that's where you're just, you have machines that are sucking CO2 out of the air. Uh, the question then becomes what you do with it. And there are some ideas that you could actually do things like use the CO2 that you've sucked out of the air with these machines to, um, as input into concrete um, or other building materials. You know, that seems fine to me. Like if you're actually able to do that at scale uh, and because public financing is zero sum, you're not taking away money for um, projects that we know would actually have an impact in the climate crisis, I think that that would be fine. I think also you need to make sure you're consulting local communities. Um, and this is one issue with uh, with a lot of CCS projects generally is that they require building a lot of infrastructure, pipelines, removing the CO2 around, um, just as an example. And what we'd seen in uh, some of the projects that were developed over the last decade in the US and the South is that there's use of eminent domain. You're having to you know, destroy communities to build these pipelines. It's not a new story, but do we need, really need a whole other set of infrastructure um, to deal with a climate crisis like this? And I think it's you know, questionable. So consulting local communities has to be a part of this uh, if we are to do it. And that's the same for any proposed solutions, even if they're renewables projects. There's another type of uh, carbon capture and storage that I think some in my, um, I guess, in my circles that are still kind of open to, which is BECS. This is um, bioengineering, uh, bioenergy carbon capture. So this is not relying on fossil fuels. This is getting to a point where you're using some form of bioenergy. So say, ideally, you're just using leftovers from a sawmill or something like that, wood pellets um, to, to um, produce electricity, and you're capturing that CO2 or some other project like that, where you're using some kind of biomass as an input. But then the question becomes, is it sustainable? Not just is it good for the climate? I mean, there's another global crisis we have, which is extinctions. Uh, we're in the probably second worst, at least, extinction crisis that the world has ever seen, uh, the worst one since humans have been around, for sure. And so we, whatever solutions we move forward can't have a massive impact on biodiversity either. If we're sourcing this biomass from otherwise healthy forests, 
anywhere in the world, um, that could be a big problem. So just something to keep an eye on with BEX if any projects move forward like that. Well, what are some of the re- main reasons that uh, global leaders are not acting more quickly? Well, there's a few, uh, and we talked about CCS, and so that is a moral hazard sort of exacerbates any of those reasons. Um, I would say the you know promise of nuclear energy is also another one of those moral hazards we could talk about as well, but that's just getting to, is it worth the money spent and nuclear isn't? But I, the first one I'd point out is that in some countries, uh, leaders are just not accountable to the people they govern, much less to the global community. So there's still... And there's still countries whose economies are reliant on fossil fuels production and exports that don't have any strategy for diversifying their economies. And I won't name these countries, but they're still involved in the UN climate negotiations and attempting to at least negotiate in good faith to deal with the climate crisis. Um, but they're depending on an industry which needs to go away. So it's difficult to have negotiations in good faith if those are the circumstances. Um, and. Why not, this, why not? Why not name names? I mean, uh, which which countries are we talking about? Well, I think it's some are at different places, and because I'm not in conversations with each of them, um, uh, I would not presume that, say, Saudi Arabia has no behind closed doors strategy that is starting to develop to diversify its economy and no longer export oil and gas. Uh, I mean, I know that that country in particular is investing more and more in solar. We just hope that they're not doing it only in other countries with an expectation that they will get some credit that cancels out the climate pollution that's coming from burning the oil that came from under their ground. Uh, so I think it's going to be, you know, how you get to a point where they actually are negotiating in good faith is going to be different with each country. But we do need to see a strategy that they're actually diversifying. It's harder if you're talking about specific companies, and I think why. Uh, I would be slow to sit down at the negotiating table with a big company like Exxon, which uh, has talked about diversifying its its revenue base, but hasn't really done that. And they're still really just looking at extreme oil extraction strategies, including carbon capture for enhanced oil recovery. So, but I also think that the accountability issue is uh, not just about which countries are at the negotiating table. It's also a subnational issue. So, if you're talking about um, not just carbon sources of carbon, but carbon sinks, so we need global forest protection. Uh, and if you have countries who are not considering the needs and impacts on indigenous peoples that live in um, in these huge intact forests, then you know that those forests are more likely going to be under threat. Uh, so, if you have this uh, approach where you're actually looking at the needs of people on the ground as well as the needs of the global community uh, and not just about climate, you're probably more likely going to support the movement in the right direction. Uh, but another thing I point to, I think I mentioned before, is this in-person perverse incentives from the global economy. And this is essentially that we still have this system of economic development that is fundamentally harming the biosphere. And uh, we've talked a lot about the World Bank the World Bank really for years was promoting this development model. I think that they're evolving, they're getting a little bit better. And one thing, one great result, I think that came out of this recent climate conference in Egypt was that the global community is coming around that there needs to be a new sort of economic um, development model. And it can't continue to be as it has been. 
But let me just give you one example of a project I came across recently that is illustrating how we're not there yet. And so the World Bank has uh, every year a list of projects that they call climate finance, where there's climate co-benefits. And it's been really, uh, we don't quite understand how they measure climate resilience or adaptation. Is a project actually going to help communities on the ground adapt to the climate crisis? Um, that's the question that they have when they you know, invest in a project. And so I, I found it, I came across a project um, in PNG, Papua New Guinea, which is called a um, transport resilience project. So this is a climate finance project in the transport sector. This project, uh, the World Bank says is going to be good for climate adaptation in those communities because the road that they are renovating, it's a road that already exists. It's basically a, an old decrepit dirt road. It's going to um, take into account greater amounts of flooding in the future from increased rainfall from the climate crisis and the, um, the change to the local climate patterns in Indonesia or in PNG. Um, and so the metric is it will connect people along that road for a longer time. So the metric is numbers of people connected as a result of this road that's built, which will work better because it will deal with flooding better. Um, but this is just about resilience. I mean, it's a little bit questionable whether that's a good enough metric for climate resilience. I think I would say maybe it's not because is that road just number one, um, was it something that they were going to do anyway and they just decided to make it a little bit better uh, or is it being renovated because of the climate crisis? But I would put all that aside and just say, is it also good for uh, climate pollution? Like if you're gonna call it climate finance, it should be good for both helping the community adapt to climate and it shouldn't make the climate crisis worse. But this road is being built so that they can expand uh, deforestation in primary forest and old growth forest in PNG in order to uh, raise cattle for meat, uh, grow sugarcane, uh, eucalyptus and palm oil, all industries which have massive known impacts on the climate. So this overall is gonna be a project which is bad for the climate crisis from a climate pollution perspective. And in the end, all of that is for export. So it's still promoting this development model in PNG, which is probably not in the end gonna be that great for PNG. And it's certainly gonna be worse for the climate crisis. Well, uh, you've been listening to uh, a climate change with uh, our guest, Kyle Ash uh, with the Bank Information Center. Kyle, great work you're doing over there to monitor and hold uh, the World Bank and other multi lateral lending agencies accountable. And uh, that was a great example. I mean, in in a bad way of, of how we have lent to uh, countries and in ways that makes make our climate problems worse uh, rather than better. So hopefully uh, you will do great work to to stop that project and and redirect those funds in a in a more climate friendly manner. Uh, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Okay. Well, tune in next week. Uh, thanks uh, for listening and uh, you're listening to a climate change. <laughs> <laughs>